The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn the rules over you, simply find out you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and today I'm delighted to be joined for the Tuesday visit of our good friend Dr Peter Hammond, so let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am with you, yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And what we've got for you today, uh, very timely, the real story of the Allies' 14th of February St. Valentine's Day bombing of Dresden in 1945. So where would you like to start us off with this historical topic today, Peter? Well, 79 years ago, starting on night of the 13th of February, mainly throughout the 14th of February into the 15th of February 1945, the city of Dresden, the most beautiful um, cultural city imaginable in eastern Germany, which was... uh, called the Venice of the North, which was actually a totally civilian city, an open city. There was no air defences really effectively. The city of Dresden was destroyed by over 2,000 bombers of the Royal Air Force and the United States Army Air Force. Dresden had been chosen as a target by the Soviets. Joseph Stalin had persuaded Churchill and Roosevelt at Yalta to target Dresden because Dresden was a major receiving area for refugees. The city was swollen with civilians who were fleeing the Red Army's rapid, destructive advance. And on the evening of the 13th of February, 1945, 796 Lancaster bombers, and remember, Lancaster could carry 14 tons of bombs apiece, and nine de Havilland mosquitoes dropped 1,478 tons of high explosives and 1,182 tons of incendiary bombs. Between... Uh, 10.14 and 10.22 in the evening. So just almost quarter past 10 to about 22 minutes past 10, along came these 800 aircraft and they dropped thousands of tons of high explosive and thousands of tons of incendiary bombs. And basically the high explosives blew the roofs out and then the incendiary bombs started fires. And the people were... In, caught up in what was called a firestorm, the flames rose 7,000 feet and the, the smoke the next day was over 14,000 feet up in, in the sky. And the planes on the second waves had to go higher because they were so um, they were in danger of flying into the flames themselves. The, the firestorms, each fire joined together and this hadn't been seen before. The wind sucking all the oxygen from around uh, 
basically there were winds of up to 100 kilometers an hour in these firestorms in Dresden, where the um, flames were literally just whipping through areas. People were being ripped up into the air um, and incinerated. Some people were cremated there and then. Some bodies turned into very, very small, um, like um, one-sixth the size of the body in grotesque um, kind of poses. Um, many people died of asphyxiation. Many of those in the bomb shelters uh, boiled in just the, the, the heat. Others uh, died of, of asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe because all oxygen had been sucked out. So uh, what many of these fire starters included Phosphorus. Now, phosphorus, those of you in the army may know, uh, phosphorus cannot actually be put out. So if you throw water at phosphorus, it may put it out for a moment, but it'll restart again. So people who leapt into the canal uh, to get away, or the river to get away from uh, being burned on with phosphorus, some people were put a light by phosphorus that attached to their clothes or their skin. They jumped into the uh, river. As they came up out of the river, the flames would restart again. They'd go under the water, it would go out, they'd come up again, it would start again until they, they drowned or were burned alive. Uh, the only way to get phosphorus off your skin is actually to cut it off if it touches your skin. Uh, phosphorus is, of course, banned by the Geneva Convention. It's it's illegal war crime, although it's being used in Gaza these days as well by the IDF. But the, um, the phosphorus bombs are particularly bad. Many people were actually cooked where they stood um, uh, because the tarmac of the roads literally bubbled into um, um, such heat. There were thousands of degrees heat caused by these firestorms that some people got sucked into boiling lava of the tar of the roads. So it's absolutely horrific. Now you can imagine that's bad enough, but that's not the end of it. Uh, as it, they passed midnight, at uh, three hours later, uh, in the early hours of the morning, another 1,800 tons were dropped by another second group of Lancaster bombers. Over 1,000 Lancasters came in and they bombed them. And so you had the, the workers who were busy trying to um, help firefighters and ambulance drivers and people dealing with wounded, burning, uh, uh, critically injured people uh, suddenly found themselves caught in the open by the second wave of bombers coming over. And... Amongst the bombs were not only the incendiary bombs and the high explosive bombs, but there were also timed bombs. There were bombs that buried themselves into um, the rubble, and then they only went off hours later. And the purpose for timed bombs was to get emergency workers, medical workers, relief workers, fire workers who were coming to try and help the people out, that they would be caught up in late explosions. So these time delay bombs were also part of the bombing of Dresden. And if you thought that was bad enough, the next morning, along came the U.S. Army Air Force, USAF. They came over and they did a bombing during the daytime, which caught a lot of the people who were thinking they'd survived the double bombing of the night before. And now they got nailed in the daytime. But worse than the daylight bombing of the U.S. Army Air Force, uh, some of the escorts, these long-range Mustangs, um, uh, were actually sweeping down and machine-gunning civilians on the road. There were people like mothers with a baby in arms or pushing a pram or pushing a wheelbarrow of the only possessions they could salvage, being machine gunned by these fighters of the U.S. Army Air Force who decided to strafe people on the roads who were fleeing. Now, bear in mind that Dresden was a swollen city full of refugees. There were 22 hospitals incinerated in the firebombing of Dresden. 
uh, 22 hospitals. There were hundreds of thousands of people there, far more than normal civilians. They said there could have been half a million people in the city that were uh, killed or injured in the bombings of Dresden. It's impossible to have accurate statistics because so many people just got cremated, boiled or um, uh, burned up in different ways. And nobody knew how many were there before the bombing anyway. But it was a massive, massive swollen city, one big refugee center. And uh, the panic of people, there were something like 90 kilometers from the front line of the Red Army advancing. So the city was absolutely overwhelmed. The first reports of the air raid in Dresden described it as one of the most successful of the thousand bomber raids. British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, said our pilots report there was little flack. They were able to make careful straight runs over the targets without bothering about air defences. A terrific concentration of fires was started in the centre of the city. And the British described this raid as one of the powerful blows promised by the Allied leaders Roosevelt and Churchill to Joseph Stalin at Yalta. The Allied bombers who were involved in the firebombing of Dresden later recalled the sense of shame they felt when there was no anti-aircraft fire, no night fighters opposing the bombing of the city. And numerous historians and jurists have described the bombing of the cities of Germany as a war crime and as a holocaust, and certainly Dresden qualifies for that. Yet British Air Marshal bomber Arthur Harris, the bomber command chief directly responsible for the saturation bombing of civilian centres, was knighted for his efforts. And I've actually seen a monument to Bomber Harris in Britain outside a church in downtown London, which seemed a bit of a strange thing. Um, news reports from neutral countries at the time, like from Sweden and Switzerland, were horrified, and they pointed out that Dresden was one big hospital city and had hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing the advancing Red Army. And they said the main railway station, the outskirts of the city, was unaffected by the bombing, which targeted the residential sections of the town. 22 hospitals destroyed in Dresden. One British commentator at the time wrote, who the devil is going to get anything out of this? We contribute the bombs and the machines and the crews who don't return from these raids. The Dresdners obviously don't get anything out of it. The only ones who look like they're going to benefit are the Russians, and they get Dresden at our expense. I don't see any reason why we should go and kill civilians for the benefit of the Russians alone, do you? And that's a British criticism at the time, back in 1945. An Associated Press, uh, Associated Press radio dispatch sent from Paris, broadcast throughout the United States, described it as deliberate terror bombings of German population centers carried out by heavy bombers of the Allied Air Forces on residential sections of Berlin and Dresden, with the unprecedented day and night assaults on the refugees, refugee crowded capital, the civilians fleeing the red tide in the east. So Americans traditionally viewed with suspicion the Royal Air Force Bomber Command's strategy of bombing cities. But now the Americans learned that the American bombers were involved in the same terror raids on civilians that they had refused to be involved in before. The report noted that all available German air forces were concentrated in the Eastern Front to combat the Red Army, which was threatening to destroy Germany and all of Europe. And so the targeting of civilian centers in Germany seemed exceptional cowardice, quote unquote. That's what was being said at the time. As this Associated Press news report was widely broadcast by radio throughout the United States, General Eisenhower and General Henry Arnold cabled General Spaz to clarify that the United States Army Air Force was only targeting military objectives, which was their principle, not engaging in the area bombing of cities. Saturation bombing or bombing of cities 
uh, was specifically out of United States Army Air Force uh, code of, um, of conduct. General Carl Spatz gave the ambiguous, dishonest assurance that the United States Army Air Force only attacked military objectives. But of course, this wasn't true. Generally, it was true, but wasn't true on this occasion. American historian Professor Harry Elmer Barnes wrote, it was the indiscriminate bombing of civilians by the so-called strategic air forces during World War II, which culminated in the destruction of Dresden, which was a wholly non-military objective. There was no military target in Dresden. They didn't even go for the railway station. It might have been considered a possible military objective. February 1945 bombing completely pulverized the code of civilized warfare and returned the treatment of military opponents and civilians to the level of the primary warfare that had prevailed amongst the savages, the Assyrians, and the medieval Mongol hordes. On the basis of the most authoritative British sources, Mr. Veal demonstrates clearly it was the British, not the Germans, who introduced this indiscriminate strategic bombing of civilians, despite the efforts of Hitler to avert this reversion to barbaric practices. That's a quote from American historian Professor Henry Elmer Barnes. So how did we get there? I've got a book here, um, Among the Dead Cities by A.C. Grayling. I was at the hospital yesterday getting my injured hand seen to again and follow. And at the beginning of this uh, book uh, by A.C. Grayling, Among the Dead Cities, they quote the U.S. State Department to the British ambassador in, in Washington, October the 18th, 1945, when he was asked, what do you mean by war crimes? The Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunals was on at the time. And so the U.S. State Department gave this definition. The term war crimes includes murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation, and other inhumane acts committed against any civilian population before or during the war. So war crime includes targeting civilian populations during war. And uh, so that's an important point. How did we get to the point of bombing cities? I grew up believing that... Um, the Germans behaved badly in the Second World War and the British really played cricket according to the rules and the Americans were very gracious and generous. And I got that impression from Hollywood films. And now on mission experiences in Sudan, and I've been a missionary for over 40 years, most of the time to persecute churches, and the 38 countries I've ministered in, including during eight wars, I've served the persecute church. During my outreaches in Sudan, I've experienced aerial artillery and rocket bombardments. And it's quite an experience when you have loud explosions near you, almost bursting your eardrums, and you feel the shockwaves. Um, but these experiences I had of being bombed in Sudan are insignificant compared to that of my parents, who lived through the Second World War. My father served in the Royal Artillery in the British Army for the whole six years of the war. And he told me of the Heinkel 111s coming over the military base and turning his barracks in Kent into matchsticks as he lay flat on a parade ground with debris flown high into the air and pummeling him into the ground. My mother was only six years old when she experienced the first bombing. It was September 1940, and she was at the circus in Berlin when the Royal Air Force bombed them. She was almost trampled to death in a stampede to flee the exploding bombs. People and animals were fleeing. Many times my mother came out during the air raids, hearing sirens, and had to rush to the air raid shelters. And frequently she actually saw the green and red parachute flares being dropped by the lead Pathfinder bombers to guide the thousand bombers where to unleash the cog of death and destruction. She called them the Christmas trees. Her neighborhood was turned into blazing rubble. Imminent British 
war historian Captain Sir Basil Littlehart described the strategic bombing campaign of the RAF Bomber Command during the Second World War as the most uncivilized means of warfare that the world had known since the Mongol invasions. And the Mongols were pretty barbaric in targeting civilians. The British Prime Minister at the beginning of the Second World War, Neville Chamberlain, declared that England's policy of bombing cities in Germany was absolutely contrary to international law, and he forbade it. But just before being ousted in Winston Churchill's coup in June 1940, Prime Minister Chamberlain announced, Her Majesty's government will never resort to the deliberate attack on women and children and other civilians for the purpose of mere terrorism. Well, shortly after replacing Chamberlain as Prime Minister, Winston Churchill declared, Our supreme effort must be to gain overwhelming mastery in the air. The bombers alone can provide the means to victory. So Winston Churchill was convinced we cannot beat the German army on the ground, but we can bomb their families back at home and we can undermine their morale back in the heartland and maybe uh, undermine also the industries and the um, industrial capacity to make weapons in Germany by bombing. And so Winston Churchill put the vast majority of British military money into bombers, even more than they put into the Navy. It was incredible. Our supreme effort must be overwhelming mastery in the air. The Marshal of the Royal Air Force, Lord Trenchard, as early as 1921 declared, the next war could be won by bombing alone, by destroying the enemy's will to resist. Destroying the enemy's will to resist is done by bombing the civilian centers. And from this perspective, an entire strategic philosophy developed, which was to dominate the British and later the American military strategy. But it was the Italian general, Gulo Dohet, who predicted that in the next war, bombers would inflict millions of civilian casualties in a matter of merely a few days. And Stanley Baldwin, British Prime Minister, described this new military philosophy in the House of Commons, the only defence is offence, which means you have to kill more women and children more quickly than the enemy. If you want to protect yourself, you need to kill the enemy's civilians before they can kill yours. And now, although aircraft were only invented in 1903, and first used militarily in the First World War. Books and films developed a public dread of aerial bombardment out of all proportion to its actual threat, inspired more by the science fiction novels of H.G. Wells and Alexander Corder's films, Things to Come, the Royal Air Force experts declared as an article of faith, the bomber will always get through. But strangely, these men failed to anticipate that technical developments in one area of warfare are soon matched as countermeasures in other areas, Yes, aircraft had developed rapidly in World War I. Just as gas warfare was soon countered by gas masks, anti-aircraft technology soon caught up as well. And then night bombing was soon countered by night fighters. Yet many British politicians and military leaders leapt upon this philosophy of the faint heart. After the disastrous battles of World War I, when entire divisions decimated in the Battle of the Somme, Passchendaele and Ypres, the British feared to face the German soldier on the battlefield and sought for an indirect way of winning future wars. Instead of losing hundreds of thousands of soldiers facing the German army on the ground, they would drop millions of tons of bombs on German cities from a safe height of 10,000 feet or more. Now, I've actually been to many of the uh, cemeteries in Ypres and around Belgium and France, and I've visited many cemeteries and I've counted over 65 Hammonds on the walls just around Ypres and six different military um, cemeteries. And the Commonwealth War Commission, War Graves Commission, informed me from their computer that actually 480 Hammonds died in the First World War in the British Army. 480, just of my family name. And uh, something like 80% of the British Army in 1914 is buried in Belgium. There were 
hundreds of cemeteries just within a 10-kilometer radius of Ypres. Absolutely extraordinary how many men died on the ground in that small area of Belgium. And so with that in the, in the minds of many of the people, they leapt upon the idea of the bomber is the way that we can inflict huge casualties in the enemy without suffering as much risk to ourselves. Now, when during the Spanish Civil War, the Nationalists bombed Barcelona in 1938, reportedly 1,300 inhabitants were killed. From the British aerial experts, they conclude every ton of bombs will inflict 72 casualties. And this figure then was treated as definitive. On this basis, the Home Office predicted 1 million casualties in London in the first few days of the next war. And this alarmist nonsense had no basis in fact. In 1939, when Britain declared war on Germany, 3rd of September, the air raid sirens sounded and there were 600,000 hospital beds already ready in London. And of course, they never needed 600,000 aircraft uh, hospital beds in London, and they were never used. But um, this was the kind of expectation of high casualties that was expected. Many expected London to be bombed the day after war was declared on the 3rd of September 1939. And in fact, of the half a million killed in the entire Spanish Civil War, less than 3% were killed by air raids. The casualty rate in Barcelona was barely three casualties for every ton of bombs dropped. So the facts did not support the bomber command's philosophy. And so those facts were just suppressed because they were inconvenient facts. Now, it's interesting that German Luftwaffe had no four-engine bombers and they had no plans to produce any in the future. And this was also suppressed. The entire German Luftwaffe was plainly geared to ground support of the Wehrmacht. And their Heinkel 111s and Stuttgart JU-87s are what are called light bombers. They had very small bomb capacities, only designed for ground support of panzer divisions. The Heinkels could carry one ton of bombs, unlike a Lancaster that could carry 14 tons, and a Stuka could carry 250 kilograms bombs. That's about it. And so they were only light bombers. They were only designed to go ahead of ground offenses to clear the way for uh, panzer units on the ground. So uh, they had strategic uh, tactical bombing, we should say, not strategic bombing. Strategic bombing is the bombing of cities, whereas tactical bombing is bombing the targets immediately in front of your military advance. So Germany's heaviest bomber didn't even have the capacity to carry 10% of the payload of the bombs that a British Lancaster was designed for. The earliest British air raids in Germany were disappointing for bomber command. On the 4th of September 1939, the day after Britain declared war in Germany, an RAF attack on a German seaplane base resulted in 24 of the 28 British bombers being shot down. The survivors managed to drop a few bombs by mistake on the Danish town of Esberg. This was 190 kilometers from the target. Air raids on German warships in Wilhelmshaven were also ineffective, and the few bombs that hit their targets either didn't explode or bounced off the German armor, causing no damage at all. In fact, like in the First World War, where 10% of artillery shells failed to explode, um, sometimes the failure rate was 20% of, of sh artillery shells failed to explode. Many of the bombs dropped uh, by the Royal Air Force failed to explode, especially in the early days of the war, and they're still digging them up today in Belgium and elsewhere. The early casualties suffered by the British bomber commands were extreme. In fact, at first, it seemed that the British bomber command suffered more losses than they inflicted. Two air raids on oil installations in Aurora by over 300 British bombers achieved no hits and no damage to the plant, but they lost a lot of bombers and a lot of crew. Photographic evidence on the RAF bombing raids on the industrial Ruhr 
revealed that less than 10% of the bombers got within five miles of their target. And the bombs dropped by these aircraft were dispersed in areas 75 miles square around the intended target. During the air raids of 1940 and 1941, more British aircrew died than German victims of their bombings. And the British battle cruisers, sorry, the German battle cruisers Scharnhorst and Gneisenau at Brest were attacked by 1,723 sorties. Almost 2,000 tons of bombs were dropped on these ships. Yet Scharnhorst and Gneisenau survived these air raids mostly unscathed. And so RAF Bomber Command received more funding, more labor, more strategic materials, more equipment than all other branches of the British military combined. And so the labor of thousands of workers and factories all over Britain was being scattered across Germany to no effective military purpose. Raw materials that could have been better used to build tanks, ground support aircraft, fighters, dive bombers, machine guns, rifles, medical supplies were being squandered to, to fulfill an obsession with the bomber because People like Churchill believed the bomber was the war-winning weapon that will beat all weapons. So far from winning the war, the bomber almost lost it by absorbing the resource that could have been used to equip Britain with genuine weapons of war. But instead of recognizing that the strategic bombing campaign was a failure, but the chiefs of staff determined to concentrate on the bombing of cities because you couldn't miss the city. Cities are a big enough target that if they concentrate enough aircraft there, they've got to cause some damage. So a policy of terrorizing the German population, the civilians, became a fundamental component of the strategic bombing campaign of the Royal Air Force. Recognizing that their navigational aids were deficient and that the bomb sites were highly inaccurate, the Bomber Command now determined to concentrate entire air wings into thousand bomber raids on German cities. These nighttime saturation bombings wouldn't be able to miss their targets because they'd concentrate on the center of large cities. And so killing Germans, any Germans, even civilians, became the policy of Bomber Command. Between 1940 and 1945, 61 German cities were effectively destroyed by bombing campaigns by RAF Bomber Command. At least 2 million German civilians were killed by these air raids of the Royal Air Force and later the United States Army Air Force when they finally were persuaded to join in the bombing of cities. While the British chose to bomb by night to avoid most of the fighters, the United States Army Air Force, as a matter of principle, said they'd only bomb by day, which of course was far more dangerous, and they did lose proportionally more aircraft um, as a result. Uh, but uh, the Americans said bombing by night was not acceptable. They chose to bomb by day. The Royal Air Force chose to bomb by night as a matter of principle because they suffered less casualties that way. Indiscriminate bombing was, of course, internationally outlawed, not only by the Geneva Convention, the Hague's Convention on Warfare, but the Washington Treaty of 1922 expressly forbade the use of bombing, aerial bombardment, against civilian populations. And the United States government's propaganda films condemned the Japanese empire for bombing cities like Shanghai. Yet upon America's entry into the war, General H.H. H. Arnold advocated the policy of strategic bombing of cities such as Shanghai as the only way that Germany could be beaten. So from it being unethical war crime when the enemy did it, it became absolutely essential when our side did it. Winston Churchill commented, the air opened paths along which death and terror could be carried far behind the lines of the actual enemy to women, children, the aged, the sick, who in earlier struggles would perforce have been left untouched. And he mentioned this as a matter of fact in his books on history of the uh, Second World War. The Air Ministry historian Dennis Richards in his official history of the Royal Air Force wrote, the Royal Air Force raided the Ruhr, destroying all plants with its mostly accurately placed bombs and urban um, populations 
for those who went astray, the outcry for retaliation against Britain might prove too strong for the German generals to resist. Indeed, Hitler himself would probably lead the clamor. So the attacks on the Ruhr was therefore an informal invitation and provocation for the Luftwaffe to bomb London. The principal secretary to the Air Ministry in Britain reported, we began to bomb objectives on the German mainland before the Germans began to bomb objectives on the British mainland. Because we were doubtful about the psychological effect of this truth, that it was we who started the strategic bombing offensive, we have shrunk from giving this great decision of 11 May 1940 the publicity it deserves. And this was written in the book Bombing Vindicated by J.M. Sprate, Principal Secretary to the Air Ministry. So, okay, we started bombing of cities and we did it with a hope that they would respond in retaliation by bombing our cities. But we weren't sure what the average population would think about this. So because of the psychological effect, uh, we have shrunk from giving attention to these facts. And you just think if you watch the Battle of Britain film, it's a brilliant film. It's well made, but it's, it's actually real propaganda. So throughout the film, you never see a British bomber. You don't see one British bomber, although you do see some German Luftwaffe pilots standing on uh, the streets in Berlin as the lights go out and the air raid sirens come and you hear the sound of bombs in distance or you don't see any British bombers or you, and you don't see any civilian casualties, that's for sure, um, of the British bombings. Uh, but they just make a joke about that this is going to be embarrassing for Hermann Goering, the head of the German Luftwaffe. And uh, while you see civilians before and after they, they are killed by bombing in um, Britain, and you see even women and children who are targeted, who, who get caught up in the bombings uh, during the Blitz and uh, Battle of Britain. You don't see any German civilians and you don't see any German casualties of British bombing. You don't even see a British bomber. Uh, they have all kinds of rows and rows and rows of Heinkel bombers, but you never see a Lancaster, a Whitney, or any of the other uh, British uh, bombers, Webleys, and so on. So, intriguing, uh, the uh, Battle of Britain also while you can see that it includes the fact that a German bomber accidentally offloaded its bombs at night um, on the outskirts of London dockyards. Um, but you and you, you know that the, the British then bombed Berlin, provoking reaction of Luftwaffe to switch their targets from the airfields and the industries to ta targeting uh, London itself. Um, you see that chronologically, but they don't make any emphasis and you don't, because you don't see the German casualties, the impression given in the Battle of Britain is only the Germans bombed cities and the British were just having uh, to defend with fighters. The fact that the Royal Air Force was mostly bombers by design uh, is something that's left out of the Battle of Britain film. So Battle of Britain, in terms of the music, the focus, the zoom lens, the personal uh, touch, it doesn't give the whole story of the bombing campaign or the Battle of Britain. So that's an interesting point that comes in Bombing Vindicated book. In an interview to the New York Times on the 10th of January 1946, Air Marshal Tedder declared Germany lost the war because she had not followed the principles of total warfare. In fact, Britain mobilized total population 1939, complete conscription, including getting women into factories and women onto the uh, farms and uh, total mobilization of everyone uh, for the war. And factories in Britain were ready from 1939. Before that, 24 hours a day, full shifts, three shifts a day, uh, through Sundays every day of the week. Whereas Germany did not go to total warfare until 1943. So Air Marshal Tedder pointed out that Germany had millions of women 
who were not mobilized into the factories and so on. In fact, Adolf Hitler refused to allow the women to be mobilized despite the insistence of uh, Speer, Albert Speer, the head of munitions and the chief architect, <clears throat> had pointed out that there's half a million German women just dusting homes and uh, acting as domestics who could be mobilized. There's millions of German housewives, like 12 million, who could be mobilized. And Hitler refused to allow women to be mobilized to factories or to, even though Speer said, we could release millions more men for the army if you would let me mobilize the women into the factories. So Germany did not follow the principle of total warfare, although Britain did. And so uh, Air Marshal Tedder says that's why Germany lost. They did not follow total warfare, whereas we did. Dennis Richards in the Royal Air Force 1939-1945, the fight at odds, observed, retaliation was certain if we carried the war into Germany. There was a reasonable possibility that our capital and our industrial centers would not have been attacked if we had not... Um, if we had continued to refrain from attacking those of Germany, the primary purpose of these raids by the RAF was to goad the Germans into undertaking reprisal raids of a similar character on Britain. Such raids would arouse intense indignation in Britain against Germany and so create the war psychosis without which it would be impossible to carry out a modern war. And so to provoke counteraction was a specific strategic goal, says Dennis Richards in the Royal Air Force um, history. British jurist J.F.P. Veal in advance to barbarism observed, it is one of the greatest triumphs of modern emotional engineering that in spite of the plain facts of the case, which could never be disguised or even materially distorted, the British public throughout the Blitz period of 1940 to 41 remained convinced that the entire responsibility for their sufferings that was undergoing rested on the German leaders. Too high praise cannot therefore be lavished on the British emotional engineers. For the infinite skill with which the public mind was conditioned prior to and during a period of unparalleled strain. The inhabitants of Coventry, for example, continued to imagine that their sufferings was due to the innate villainy of Adolf Hitler, without a suspicion that a decision, splendid or otherwise, of the British war cabinet was the decisive factor in this case. Sir Archibald Sinclair, Secretary of War, declared, I'm fully in agreement of terror bombing. I'm all for the bombing of working class areas in German cities. And the reason for working class areas is because a higher concentration of German families are found in these working class high density areas in the center of the city, rather than the suburbs where the people are spread out, where most of the bombs may just explode on um, the gardens instead of, of houses. And so uh, suburbs were not bombed, but the inner cities were bombed. The city was unprepared and without any anti-aircraft protection. Um, when Munster, the um, first city in Germany, was bombed, by 63 British Wellington bombers just after midnight. There was no anti-aircraft protection. But by the end of the year, 90% of the old city of Munster was destroyed. On the night of 28 March 1942, 234 Wellington and Stirling bombers dropped 400 tons of bombs on Lubeck. Now, I know someone who survived the bombings in Lubeck, Dorothea Scarborough, one of our long-standing board members who's a missionary of the London Missionary Society. She was in Lubeck on the night of the first incendiary terror bombing of a city. 1,468 buildings were destroyed. 2,180 were seriously damaged. 9,000 were lightly damaged. 62% of the buildings in Lubeck were damaged or destroyed. And the reason why they chose Lubeck is not that there was any military significance. It was just that it was an old uh, medieval type city with lots of wood and therefore it would burn well. And so they thought this would be a good 
target and therefore they could get a lot of destruction for a few bombs because so much of the city was built of wood. And so Lubeck was destroyed. And my uh, good friend Dorothy Scarborough was married in the ruined um, cathedral of Lubeck, the double-speared um, cathedral of Lubeck. And that was years later, they still hadn't been able to repair uh, the cathedral, which had snow and rain falling into the center of the cathedral. On the night of 30th of May, 1942, Cologne was destroyed by Royal Air Force Bomber Command. 2,000 tons of high explosives was delivered by over 1,000 bombers in 90 minutes. The Luftwaffe commander, Hermann Goering, refused to believe the report. It's impossible. That many bombs cannot be dropped in a single night, he said. Well, he obviously had not, he had underestimated the Royal Air Force and the capacity of Lancaster. In June the 25th, 1942, Britain launched 1,000 bombers against the German port city of Bremen. And this air raid killed only 85 people, but destroyed 572 houses and lost 53 aircraft. So that wasn't particularly successful um, from the British point of view. Because the Luftwaffe was not equipped with strategic bombers, the contrast between the casualties caused by the Blitz in England and the saturation bombing of German cities is stark. Coventry lost 100 acres through bombing. Approximately 300 people in Coventry, which was a major munition center where they made a lot of weapons owned by Rothschild factories, um, 300 people died in Coventry to the German air raids by the Luftwaffe. But the RAF bombing of Hamburg killed 70,000 civilians in just one city of bombing. Between 24th of July and 2nd of August 1943, RAF Bomber Command unleashed Operation Gomorrah against the coastal city of Hamburg in Germany. 8,000-pound blockbusters, 4,000-pound cookie bombs knocked out the roofs and the windows. And then the subsequent waves dropped 350,000 incendiary bombs to start fires. All the roofs have been knocked out, the windows have been knocked out. Now the incendiary bombs come, phosphorus and so on, and they start fires which would go, of course, through these houses. Crews of Halifax bombers reported the mass of raging fires rose to 19,000 feet, and the lead bombers dropped parachute flare markers to guide the following bombers where to release their bombs in the dock. The waterworks were destroyed first, so there was no running water for the fire brigade to extinguish the sea of flames, which engulfed the entire city. The next day, 25th of July, the U.S. Army Air Force B-17 Flying Fortress bombers unleashed further destruction upon the stricken city of Hamburg. The British had lost only 12 aircraft the night before. The Americans lost 15 aircraft during the day raid. For 10 days and nights, the RAF by night and the U.S. Army Air Force by day kept up a relentless day and night bombardment of this doomed city. 16,000 buildings were destroyed in Hamburg and 70,000 civilians died in the 10-day firebombing of Hamburg, Operation Gomorrah. So that is the background. It wasn't just Dresden. Other cities were also targeted. And Kassel, I've been to Kassel as well. The German city of Kassel suffered over 300 air raids, some of them by 1,000 bomber raids, the British by night, the Americans by day. And when the city surrendered on the 4th of April, 1945, barely 15,000 people remained of the original population of a quarter of a million. Weiner Neustadt in Austria emerged from the air raids with only 18 houses intact, and its population of 45,000 had been reduced to just 860 people left. The London Times Review on the British official history of strategic air offensive commented, one closes these volumes feeling uneasy, that the true heroes of the story they tell are neither the contending air marshals nor even the 58,000 officers and men of Bomber Command who were killed in action. The heroes were the inhabitants of the German cities under attack. 
the men, women, and children who stoically endured and worked on amidst the flaming ruins of their houses and factories up until a moment when the Allied armies overran them. In the course of watching a British propaganda film showing the bombing of German cities from there, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill suddenly sat bolt upright and asked Lord Casey, are we beasts? Are we taking this too far? I mean, he asked the question, but he never answered it. Throughout the world, there were shockwaves of revulsion against the bombing of Dresden and Cologne, Hamburg and other cities. This compelled the propaganda ministries to seek to generate as much counter-accusations of atrocities against the enemy to justify the targeting of whole cities for destruction. And so soon, pictures of starving inmates of labor camps were being published widely. The fact that the starvation was caused by the naval blockade and aerial bombardment of Germany was, of course, not pointed out. There's a picture that you might have seen. It was published in Life magazine of um, piles of corpses on tops of piles of wood smoking. And um, normally the caption says victims of the Holocaust. And I've seen this time and again, people even saying Auschwitz. But you can see tall buildings behind it. It's in the Altmark. It's This is the main inner city of Dresden. And these bodies are civilian bodies of German civilians who'd been piled up to be burned in the city square because there wasn't enough space to bury them. There were too many bodies, too many, literally hundreds of thousands of bodies off the air raids. And so they piled them up and had funeral pyres in the center of the city. And these pictures, close-ups of them rather, had been used, and I've seen these used, um, as these are German atrocities of Germans killing Jews, whereas actually they were German civilians killed by Allied Air Force bombings of civilian centers. So uh, these kind of um, propaganda counterattacks were made in order to drown out the outrage of people saying, how can we be bombing cities? And bear in mind, cities are not just made up of people. They're made up of pets. They're made up of churches, hospitals, schools, not just factories, but also museums, libraries, culture, monuments. And all of this is meant to be protected according to the Geneva Convention. Now, as every harbour, railway junction and bridge in Germany had been bombed, all basic services had broken down in the final months of the war. Starvation was widespread, and then there was epidemics of typhus which had erupted. Even pictures of German civilians laid out in the sense of bombed out towns were soon published with captions that these were victims of German death camps. And American soldiers in Dachau had German civilians drag victims of typhus into the showers, which Americans then claimed had been gas chambers. And later, all parties agreed there'd never been a gas chamber at Dachau, and the Americans were ordered by a court to dismantle the structure that they had built after the war to show to tourists. But by then, virtually all the prison wardens at Dachau had been massacred by American forces for the crime, which are now admitted had not taken place there. The American judge at the Nuremberg trials, Nicholas Biddle, later acknowledged Germany waged a much cleaner war than we did. Uh, I mean, just take, for example, from the beginning of the war, everyone was convinced there would be bombing of cities and that there would be a use of gas war, just like there'd been the First World War. But although Germany had the most advanced uh, gas and even nerve gas um, uh, stockpiles available that they could have used, Adolf Hitler steadfastly refused to allow gas to be used. He's the most famous person to ever have been gassed. He was actually blind for four months during the First World War because of being gassed near Ypres. And uh, he adamantly refused to allow German force to use gas, even when there were people in the high command who thought it would be a good idea. And so there's a whole range of interesting things uh, that you look at where you can see, well, there were some things where evidently they were not waging total war to the full limits of their abilities. Um, 
And so the American judge at the Nuremberg Trials, Nicholas Biddle, said they actually waged a cleaner war than we did. Winston Churchill acknowledged, had Germany won the war, he would have probably been tried as a war criminal for having authorized the bombing of cities. And the Lord Trenchard, Marshal of the Royal Air Force, once declared, I cannot write what I mean. I cannot say what I mean, but I expect you to know what I mean. The official historian of the Strategic Air Offensive, Sir Charles Webster, noted, half of the bomber sorties made over Germany were a complete waste of time. The weapons with which the, German, the British bombers were armed, the general purpose bomb, was so unreliable, so ineffective as to constitute a waste of strategic resources. They used to call it the general uh, purpose dud um, instead of general purpose bomb. Between 1939 and 1945, Bomber Command dropped over half a million 500-pound general-purpose bombs and nearly 150,250-pound general-purpose bombs. Not only were these bombs unsuited to the task for which they were used, but because the general characteristics, which consist of an unhappy compromise between strength of casing and weight of explosive, they were also relatively inefficient and also often defective weapons. It's estimated that nearly 40% of all the bombs dropped by the British in 1940 failed to explode. 40%, much worse than the 10% that the Royal Artillery experienced in the first year of the First World War. Even the 4,000-pound bombs frequently broke up on impact without exploding. It's observed that Bomber Command wasted thousands of aircrew who lost their lives carrying defective bombs to Germany. This is described as as bad as sending men to battle with their lo rifles loaded with blanks. It's now clear that General Dohart of Italy and Marshal Trenchard of the Royal Air Force were wrong. The bombers did not win the war. In fact, you can safely say not only did bombing of cities not shorten the duration of the war, but strategic bombing campaign actually prolonged the war and exponentially increased the death toll of the war. Unwilling to face the German soldier on the battlefield, these strategists were prepared to drop bombs on his family from a safe height of over 10,000 feet. And this indirect way of winning a war proved to be an illusion. Over 2 million people were killed and millions more injured and crippled as a result. So the strategic bombing campaign was not only unethical, but counterproductive. And I think that it's so important that we uh, know these things. And David Irving wrote the book, The Destruction of Dresden, published in 1963, which has been of immense help for me in putting together this presentation. Basil Littlehart wrote The Evolution of Warfare. Uh, F.J.P. Veal published Advance to Barbarism. The Strategic Air Offensive Against Germany on Her Majesty's Stationary Office was published in 1961. The Royal Air Force in 1939-1945 um, was published by Her Majesty's Stationary Office. The Knight Hamburg Died by Martin Cadell of Ballantine Books in 1960. Death of a City by Michael McLaughlin of Historical Review Press. History of Second World War by Bas Captain Basil Littlehart. And AC gradings among the dead cities. Is the targeting of civilians in war ever justified? These are some of the resources I've used uh, to uh, present this. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Thank Peter. Very much, There's, Peter. Um, There's, um, funnily enough, I just actually enough, got an email got from an email. Uh, Mark R. Elsis, who publishes many of our shows, um, about uh, the Dresden atrocity. So I'll be getting this show over to him because I'm sure that he'll be wanting to use this one as he's clearly interested in the subject. That's earthnewspaper.com, folks, earthnewspaper.com. And we thank Mark for his support. Um, lots of uh, other material on this. I think you've done a fantastic job, Peter. If I 
uh, wanted to introduce anyone to the subject, then this is the presentation that I would put forward. Um, and then, of course, if you want to go in uh, deeper, I did read the book uh, Hellstorm by Thomas Goodrich, but it was probably the Ooh. most difficult book that I've ever read. Um, very, very upsetting. I can say the same. That that was so traumatic for me, especially as my mother lived through this. It It was so traumatic for me. I could not watch the film on it, but I did go through the book Hellstorm, but I was in tears for much of it, just absolutely horrific. Hellstorm is something for strong stomachs, but if we can't bear reading about it, we shouldn't allow it to be done either. No, exactly. I, I, should, just, I should just add, uh, Andrew, something I left out was the Hague Conventions of 1899 and the Hague Conventions of 1907 set rules in place regarding the attack of civilian populations. The Hague Convention stated, and Britain and America are signatories of this, religious buildings, art and science centers, charities, hospitals, and historic monuments are to be spared with any, any bombardment, unless they're being used for military purposes. The Hague Convention also prohibits the employment of arms, projectiles, or material calculated to cause unnecessary suffering. And I'd give a Bible verse here too. Deuteronomy 20 verse 19 says, when you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees. So if you're not to destroy the trees, because um, trees are life, and why would you destroy that which is essential for life if you are waging a war? Wars are meant to be defensive, and they are not meant to be even a prolonged besieged warfare. Don't destroy the trees. Deuteronomy 20 verse 19. Along with the Hague Conventions, you despair art and science centers, charities, hospitals, historic monuments, and you're not to use any materials calculated to cause unnecessary suffering. One of the things that I thought was particularly intriguing that's brought out in Among the Dead Cities, the amount of bombing of cities increased enormously in the latter part of the war. In fact, more tonnage of bombs was dropped in the last months of the war, 1945, when the war was over effectively and Germany was defeated, than the rest of the war combined. So when you look at the tonnage of high explosive and incendiary bombs dropped in Germany, they dropped more in the last few months of the war than they did in the whole of the six years of the war. Why was that necessary? Why was Dresden targeted when the war was already over? And how did it shorten the war, killing lots of civilians? Surely, uh, you know, you can understand a railway station, you can understand a um, tank factory, you can understand the targeting of a naval base. But why would you target a civilian city like Dresden, especially in the last months of the war when it's just filled with refugees? And so I think there's some important questions that need to be asked because the way how this is glamorized in Hollywood movies, you know, we have movies where you're meant to feel uh, all kinds of um, uh, sympathy for bombers like in Hanover Street where there's this bomber going over targeting a city and uh, Memphis Bell and other ones where the heroes are the bombers and you don't see the victims on the ground. Uh, for anyone who wants to see a depiction of the bombing of Dresden, um, Germany did produce an excellent film called Dresden. That's just the title. It's well worth watching. It's in German with English subtitles. Well made. I must say it, it quite affected me because the nurse in the film looked very much like my mother, who was also a nurse. And the picture I've seen of her during uh, her nursing days looked so much like the main character in this film. And just the whole um, um, scenario of an, a British bomber getting shot down, ending up in Dresden on the night of the bombing. It, it's very well made, but the, the scenes of the firestorm created, absolutely extraordinary, one of the most well-made films ever. Um, 
and certainly the most honest film I've seen produced on the bombing of cities, Dresden. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, for the Hellstorm book, uh, the film that uh, Peter mentioned, and also an audio book which Paul English narrated, and uh, as you can imagine, uh, reading it is difficult, narrating it, obviously the worst thing is having to experience it, but uh, Paul said to me that he literally would have to take breaks and walk around the garden while he was doing the narration, but all three of those variations are available on moneytreepublishing.com. That's moneytreepublishing.com that also publishes my book. And before we go, Peter, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Thank you. Yes, my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, or as Americans say, ZA. So peter at frontline.org.za. Our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org, SA short for South Africa, so frontlinemissionsa.org. We're, of course, on Facebook as well, um, and uh, Twitter, other places. So uh, you look for Peter Hammond or for Frontline Fellowship. And uh, if you want to contact our mission, mission at frontline.org.ca is the general email. But I'll be glad to receive any emails at my contact as well. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show, which was the real story of the Allies' 14th of February, St. Valentine's Day bombing of Dresden in 1945. Peter and I will be back with you again next Tuesday. I'll be back with you on Saturday. And until then, folks... Enjoy your week and bye for now.